Welcome to God Pods, Faith Conversations from Boston College's Church in the 21st Century Center. Good afternoon and welcome everyone, uh, or good evening, good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Kristen Heyer. I'm a professor of theological ethics and director of the graduate program in the theology department here at Boston College. Uh, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to our webinar today. Refugees and Migrants, Paradoxes in the Age of COVID-19. As you may know, we have been hosting uh, the stunning Angels Unawares sculpture here on campus this month. Uh, and we are honored to have with us today the person who not only commissioned the original piece uh, installed in St. Peter's Square last year, but who now directs the global church's work on behalf of migrants and refugees, his eminence, Cardinal Michael Cherney. Good afternoon. Good morning. So we have uh, full bios for each of our panelists uh, available in the webinar materials and linked here in the chat. Um, so I will simply welcome and, and briefly introduce each of them now. Uh, so to begin, uh, His Eminence Cardinal Michael Cherney, Undersecretary of the Migrants and Refugees Section of the Holy See's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development. We also have joining us today, Ms. Marjean Perhat, the Director of Refugee and Immigration Services of the Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Boston. Uh, and finally, Dr. Alejandro Olayo Mendez of the Society of Jesus, an Assistant Professor in Boston College's School of Social Work. So I would like to thank the organizers of today's event, Boston College's Boise Center for Religion and American Public Life, its Church in the 21st Century Center, uh, and BC's Program for Global Public Health and the Common Good. This global public health program is part of BC's new Schiller Institute for Integrated Science and Society, an exciting new addition uh, here at Boston College whose mission is to lead our community in addressing critical societal issues related to energy, health, and the environment. The Schiller Institute's focus on integral human development is closely linked to the outlook of Pope Francis on these issues. We would also like to thank our other event co-sponsors who are noted on the invitation. So given our uh, time constraints today and the number of our speakers, we decided to gather some questions in advance from several BC classes. Uh, but we welcome all of you to submit comments uh, to the Church in the 21st Century email, which appears in the chat, uh, church21 at bc.edu. And we thank you again for joining us for today's conversation. So to begin, uh, Cardinal Cherney, thank you so much for being with us today and for the gift of Angels Unawares. Um, given that Pope Francis has made responding to migrants and refugees really a priority of his pontificate from its outset, could you give us a brief overview of what your office does in this regard? Uh, gladly. So ours is called the Section for Migrants and Refugees. So we're part of the a larger dicastery for integral human development. And our, our uh, simple, in quotes if you like, our simple mission is to help the church, uh, to support and accompany the church throughout the world in her responses to vulnerable people on the move. 
And uh, by vulnerable people on the move, the ones that we're concerned with, we include uh, asylum seekers, uh, refugees, um, vulnerable migrants or poor migrants, and uh, victims of human trafficking and internally displaced. So uh, the, the, our question, uh, our mission, or our question in each case is how, how does the church in this country, in this diocese, down to in this parish, uh, accompany those vulnerable people on the move that are uh, uh, that are knocking on their door or that are in their area. Excellent, thank you. So it's really quite a task today in our day. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that. Um, I think uh, we certainly are all living in an age of migration, um, and I wonder how you would characterize the scope. Uh, and nature of the challenges that the, the Universal Church and the different countries and communities with whom you were faced today. Um, we encounter on the one hand unprecedented numbers of persons on the move, um, and yet they may find themselves paradoxically uh, navigating a pandemic experience of lockdown, so to speak. So how would you describe the, the challenge you face at the current moment? Well, maybe we could actually begin with uh, with the um, uh, statue or the monument that's there at, at BC. Um, basically, it says uh, people on the move uh, throughout history. These, uh, this uh, sculpture says that we, have, uh, we were practically born on the move. Human uh, it were, being on the move in many ways is built into us now genetically. We wouldn't be who we are. We certainly wouldn't be together today if it weren't for so many of our ancestors having moved over and over again. So uh, one of uh, our responses is to say, well, it, no, it's what we've always been doing. Um, what has changed? Uh, one thing has changed is, is communications. So while people moved, but uh, uh, others didn't know about it so well, uh, nowadays we uh, not only know, but we're also made to think things that are maybe not true. So for example, the uh, the word crisis is used very easily. Global refugee crisis, global migrant crisis. I don't know who decided it was a crisis, uh, but uh, the fact that there are numbers of people who are on the move is not in itself a crisis. Uh, many of our, uh, many aspects of our life and of our economy and of our uh, culture, of our well-being would be impossible if people weren't moving. So that's uh, some of our thinking. Um, maybe the last point is uh, when we use the word crisis, we should take away the word global and put in somebody's name. Because if you have been on the move yourself and uh, vulnerable, then for you, it really is a crisis. And uh, that's uh, where the uh, paradox comes from in the title. The paradox is that uh, people who uh, need to move can't. And the other part is that those of us who think that we're uh, uh, free and okay, uh, we can't move either because we're locked down uh, or restrained by COVID. So there's a paradox in that those who uh, really need to move are uh, cannot and are meant made more vulnerable, while those who are uh, less vulnerable, uh, in fact, share some of the experience of those who are knocking on doors that never open. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate your drawing attention to the misuse of this understanding of crisis. I think um, it can sometimes be used uh, even to divert attention from, as you note, the real humanity of, of persons on the move, persons um, seeking to knock on doors. Uh, and it can also facilitate um, maybe scapegoating or fear mongering that turns us away from meeting real human needs or meeting um, root causes of um, people being pushed and pulled across borders, as the Pope has put it. Um, but people, so people are also, uh, the word crisis tends to uh, uh, paralyze too. Uh, crisis right. is not something that ordinary people like you and me think we can do anything about. So right. we're supposed to just sit back and, uh, and let it happen. Whereas when it's uh, a, a, a human problem, a human challenge, then we can, we can uh, step up to the plate, and we do. And that's one of the joys of the work of our section is that we accompany the church in responding in so many ways, uh, as we will hear, I know, in uh, the best parts of the program when we hear from the church uh, connected with people. Excellent. Well, why don't we broaden it out now then? I wonder if each of the three of you could speak to how um, COVID-19 has really impacted the lives of persons on the move, persons um, in limbo, persons perhaps in refugee camps and detention centers. Um, I know that the pandemic has disrupted life even for stable populations. So, so much more is it affecting uh, migrant workers, essential workers, refugees. So I wonder if we could hear uh, Cardinal Cherney first from you with a global view, but then also, um, Brigham, Father Alejandro, in terms of the work that you've done on the, the U.S.-Mexico border, um, and Marjean, here in Boston, what you're seeing uh, when refugees arrive, perhaps locally, in terms of the impact of COVID-19. Well, I think most, most people uh, joining us on uh, this uh, call will be stunned to know that uh, vulnerable people on the move spend a, an, a, a close to 20 years getting to where they want to go on average. In other words, it's, it's a very, very difficult and frustrating process. And uh, it, it uh, well, it simply blows your mind when you pay some attention to it to realize what they put up with. So uh, within this very painful and slow and often frustrating and uh, bewildering process, uh, COVID has, has just made things much, much more complicated. And I think uh, people can easily imagine that. But let me add another thing, which uh, opens our minds and hearts also to the mysteries of life. Uh, it has also um, had some good effects. There are countries where detention centers have been empty because the detention centers would easily become hotspots. And uh, God knows that anything we can do to, to decriminalize the, uh, this business of human movement, human uh, mobility, decriminalize it and regularize it and make it safe and, uh, and human again is a good thing. And so if COVID emptied our detention centers, well, that's something to be grateful for. Certainly. Father Alejandro? Yes, uh, thank you. I think um, probably it's necessary to emphasize that even before COVID-19, people on the move move in very difficult circumstances. They are in very vulnerable situations. I mean, like the experiences that I'm familiar with of Central Americans or even Mexicans trying to reach the United States crossing Mexico, it's a very, very grueling journey. 
that takes, I mean, takes a toll on you emotionally, physically. And I think even before COVID-19, waiting at the border in uncertain uh, situations, long waiting times uh, for processing asylum, uh, asylum uh, claims creates creates a lot of despair in people and a lot of uncertainty. So even before COVID-19, that reality was there already. Uh, I think COVID-19 has even slowed down even much more the process of, uh, or the move of the people. I don't think it has completely stopped it. But what it has created in the one hand is it has pushed people to make decisions to try to move in even more dangerous or more vulnerable situations, which of course is not good for, for, for anyone. But on the other hand, it's it also the long stays of people and the lack of resources put a strain also on the local communities that try to provide a response to these vulnerable migrants, all at least across the border in the United States. Because it's necessary to emphasize that the first responders often are the local communities the faith-based groups that try to, to provide and to respond to the human need and pain that they see and that they witness. Thank you. Marjean? So thank you. And to follow up on Father Alejandro, what we've also seen with COVID-19 is it has allowed our government currently to further restrict migration. And so, here in Boston, um, the border might seem thousands of miles away, but it's not really. We work with many unaccompanied children and families who also migrate and come across the border. And what really concerned us um, early on was the use of COVID-19 to expel or not allow people to have the chance to ask for asylum, which is their right and it is a part of international law. And so we have families here who were hoping that their child, having made that extremely perilous and scary journey, might be able to come and finally reunify with a parent here. And so, but we know sadly that thousands of children and other adults were not able to have that chance. But at the same time, we did have a bit of an irony here in Boston during COVID in respect that 91% of the refugees from overseas that we are expecting arrived during COVID. So between March and September, uh, we were expecting to have time to clean our offices and get things organized, but instead we were dealing with finding apartments, furnishing apartments, and being ready to welcome refugees during a pandemic. And um, because the government also had decimated a lot of the infrastructure to support refugees, a lot of that work fell on myself and my assistant director, um, who in addition, you know, we have our administrative duties such as budgets and uh, management and things, but we found ourselves at Logan Airport more often than in our offices. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that with a smile because it was one of the best experiences. It was hard, make no mistake. We had. Some days that both of us would be at the airport at different times, but, um, but we wore our masks and we made sure we had masks in our bags in case our refugees didn't have them, but they came off the plane scared. It's really scary. You don't know where to go. And they're looking and they're masked. I'm masked. They don't know me. I don't know them. 
but we somehow through waving hysterically, not shouting, because we know that spreads, um, to reunite with each other and to start anew. Uh, it's not been easy for them. They have to isolate, you know, as we, we would understand, but, um, but they're so resilient and absolutely amazing. Um, one of our first families to come during the pandemic is a family from the Congo. Um, Emil is the head of the family. And um, they arrived right as we were expecting flights to stop. Um, but they got in just literally, literally hours before the moratorium went into effect. And um, the one sad part was his daughter, who was 24, was left behind. And she was supposed to have traveled with them. But this happens frequently where things don't go as planned. But the family of seven arrived. And we had two amazing volunteers from one of our partner parishes. And um, they got settled into their apartment. Um, but, but, you know, they were frightened, you know, it's, it's really scary and not knowing how to use a lot of Western appliances and not accustomed to the lifestyle. And we are trying remotely and as limited as in person as possible to teach somebody, you know, how to use what in, probably we take for granted in our daily lives um, remotely, but it worked, you know, and, um, and thanks be to God in August, they were reunited with their daughter and, um, that is bringing chills to me right now because it was it was such a beautiful experience. But um, you know, refugees and immigrants are resilient. They're among the most courageous, brave people I've ever met. And so it's not a surprise that that Emil and his family and the other 59 people that we welcomed are doing well. Um, but uh, but it's definitely been um, very interesting to say the least. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Marjean. I think that's important to, to raise the ways in which recent um, changes have effectively ended asylum at the southern border in this country in terms of a response to the pandemic or with that as a reason. Hearing you talk about the concrete responses, the impact that's made makes me wonder, Father Alejandro, about um, a lot of the work you've done with shelters along the journey that you just described. Um, have the effects of MPP or of, of the pandemic related restrictions um, been visible or apparent uh, in terms of your own work at the US-Mexico border? Yes, I mean, there has been clearly um, an impact on the work that shelters are doing. I think that probably the most important thing is that we need to, under we need to understand that across the border, the, the landscape looks different. So in Matamoros, which is across uh, Bronzeville, close uh, next to the Atlantic, you will have like a, what is that, a de facto refugee camp, in which people are, have very, very limited resources when there's, uh, a when there's lack of coordination. And it's, I mean, sometimes it's Catholic charities of the Rio Grande with Sister Norma, Norma Pimentel doing a great job along with other people and some of the people who work on the Mexican side from the Diocese of Matamoros, trying to provide uh, services for this camp that really has hazard public health conditions in which, I mean, all these things about restrictions on masks and washing of the hands is very, very difficult to have and you will have um, challenges. But then if you go, let's say, to El Paso and Juarez, which has a different city, it's a, it's a different feeling, it's a larger city. So you will have, I mean, the work of the diocese of Ciudad Juarez, like the migrant shelter that uh, Father Calvillo, uh, Javier Calvillo directs, 
it's a much more stable, long-term work that has been doing. There's a lot of collaboration with other faith-based organizations, plus there's the only federal shelter in the country on the Mexican side that provides services. So they will have a little bit more infrastructure to respond, a little bit more resources than Matamoros, for example. And of course, if you move forward to the Pacific, then you will have Tijuana, which is a different take, which even has some remnants or some remnants of the, those early caravans of 2018, 2019, or the Haitians. There's a large Haitian community just living in tents in a warehouse. So they call it, they still call it the little Haiti. And then of course, the challenges that they face is that as they have been longer and longer and longer there, people tend to forget that they are still need support, they still need accompaniment, they still need services. So it looks different. But probably the last thing that I will say is also, it's not only the responses, uh, the humanitarian responses, but it's also we need to be aware of the different types of populations that there are there that require different needs. So you have, of course, the asylum seekers waiting on MPP, but you have the regular migrants that are still arriving that move from Mexico. You have internally displaced people from Mexico due to violence or crime from different parts of the country. And you still have a large number of deportees which even though during the pandemic, deportees, Mexicans are still being deported to different uh, ports of entry back to Mexico. So all these populations require different uh, services, different type of accompaniment. And of course, this reality puts a strain on the organizations working in the, in, in, on the ground. Thank you very much. Um, I wonder, Cardinal Cherney, turning to Pope Francis's thinking about the pandemic, you work closely with him and over the past six months, he has um, really offered us a rich collection of teachings related to the pandemic. Um, how would you characterize his primary concerns uh, in light of how COVID-19 has functioned really as a tragedy and a teacher, uh, as some have noted? Well, that's that's a, a, a great question, which I think he, he himself would uh, would enjoy answering. Uh, I think that right right from the start, uh, he saw uh, COVID nineteen uh, through that uh, principal lens that he uh, always uses, which is to ask himself and then ask all of us to to try to see reality and understand it from the viewpoint of the most vulnerable. That we we cannot. Uh, kind of have uh, comfortable niches for ourselves uh, when other people are in, in real distress. What we need to do is to include the concerns, uh, the sufferings, the hopes, the aspirations of those who are most in need in our own, uh, let's say, in our own self-understanding, in our own uh, how we're doing. How we're doing has to include, needs to include them. And so, from the start, he, he, uh, he encouraged the church to go to the peripheries, and suddenly a huge periphery landed on all of us. So we, we have uh, this periphery that pervades our lives, and of course it pervades in way the lives of those who, um, who already were vulnerable for a, a thousand different reasons. And uh, so he asks uh, the question of Vatican II, what uh, is the response uh, of the church to those who are most in need. And Vatican II tells us that uh, their concerns are our concerns. 
their joys are our joys, but also their sufferings and their needs are our sufferings and needs. So with regard to COVID-19, which looked at first glance like a medical uh, emergency, he understood to be a uh, practically an all-inclusive emergency that was going to uh, was uh, beginning to touch and then really did touch and uh, and he uh, sought uh, to uh, mobilize the church um, encourage the church to respond in, in all of the corners of the planet where we are but also uh, he himself as our holy father uh, to to help us to pray through and think through and uh, meditate and uh, evaluate and plan and respond. In other words, to not to turn our backs on it, but to face it. That maybe is the, uh, has been the plan uh, at work uh, since, uh, let's say, since March. He has shown us that uh, since the very beginning of his pontificate, this call to go out to the peripheries, as you say, the peripheries have now uh, touched all of us, but his his uh, long-standing call also to, I think he said on Lampedusa, to pop the soap bubbles of indifference, I think um, kind of resisting that insulation and as you say, using the experience of those already vulnerable made more vulnerable as the lens through which we look at this multi-dimensional um, challenge seems really consistent with his, uh, his own teachings. Marjean or Father Alejandro, did you want to reflect on um, the pandemic in light of, of Catholic teachings or the pandemic as a tragedy and teacher as well? Yeah, I, I was thinking, especially, I mean, as, as uh, Carlos Sherry was talking about these signs that the Pope is, well, these examples, I will say, that the way he has modeled commitment to going out to the peripheries, what was coming to mind is really, I think there's an invitation for us to find our own Lampedusas our own per peripheries where we are at. I mean, like the borders may seem too far away, but we really need to, to find where we can reach and recognize the face of those who are vulnerable. I mean, especially regarding to migrants, refugees, asylum seekers. And in recognizing that is not only recognizing that, but it is it's truly doing something about it. Let us be moved to act and be creative really in, in, in a way, responding in which ways I can contribute to build true social justice, in, way, in which ways I can promote these communities, in which ways I can participate. But there's a need really, I feel, there's a, a deep invitation in this paradox to find where are our Lampedusa's, where are the borders close by where, where I am at? Thank you. And, and if I could add to that, um, getting down to practical steps and encounters, one of the things that we've been very um, committed to is trying to create those encounters locally here in Boston. And um, with support from the US Conference of Bishops, we have um, operated what we call the power program. And um, it's, I think, a wonderful shining example for people to literally live out social justice. Uh, working with Catholic Charities to resettle refugees. We have over nine parishes that have, um, I, I think I can speak for them and say that their lives have been altered by being able to welcome and walk alongside a refugee family. 
they become our extra hands and they are the ones that help find apartments, help furnish apartments, help be at the airport again, pre-COVID, um, but to welcome refugees, 10, 15 people with balloons and flags and stuffed animals to welcome the new families. And, um, you know, these encounters have really converted a lot of hearts and minds within the parish community because they're hearing about refugees, about migrants, about unaccompanied children, why they needed to flee. The fact you hear that refugees say, I don't want to be a refugee. I had a 13-year-old girl from Syria give a testimony about how I never wanted to be a refugee. I wanted to stay in Syria. I wanted to stay in Aleppo and continue my education and contribute to my country. You know, I, I for the first time in my life, I feel shame. And, and so in those, and, and, but then with having a parish community around her to help her feel the love and the dignity that she has is so important. And so there are ways to, to be encountered and there's also ways to be in solidarity. Um, Father, the, the work you mentioned at the border is so important and so critical, and we've got to open our eyes here in Boston and across the country about what is happening and the injustices there. And those injustices, though, follow people up to the El Norte that we're at here in Boston, um, where, you know, we saw so many of our clients who are essential workers lose their jobs or... Um, or be at risk of losing their apartments and having to mobilize and make sure we can keep people housed during this pandemic so we don't create a larger homelessness crisis in this, in this state. Um, but you know, many of the parents of the unaccompanied migrant children lost their jobs in, as domestic workers cleaning and taking care of our elderly. And those people suffer and those people often are not the ones that are eligible for any sort of benefits or services and a part of the public safety net. And so that's also where people need to encounter and realize that we need to talk about and talk to our legislators about equity for all people. At the end of the day, any one of us could have been that migrant worker or that refugee arriving at the airport. We need to remember that. And if I, if I may, sorry. I think it's just necessary, I mean, along those lines to really go back to what Cardinal Sherney said at the, at, at the beginning. When we talk about migrants, refugees, uh, asylum seekers, we're not talking about labels. Mm -hmm. We're talking about people, people with histories, persons, mothers, fathers, sons, nephews, brothers, sisters. So we are talking about people with histories, with desires, with hopes, with the struggles. And I think when we talk about encountering or recognizing, there is truly this call to recognize the other who has also a history and challenge us to, to move. Thank you. Thank you all, um, especially for this summons uh, to kind of find our own opportunities for encounter, find our own Lampedusa um, here without thinking that we need to go all the way to a border. Um, but right in our backyard that there are opportunities, as Marjean also reminds us, uh, to be in solidarity. Um, I wonder back to the global level how some of these longstanding commitments of Pope Francis, um, whether in his uh, reflections over his pontificate in, in word and deed or um, these um, reflections on the pandemic in particular, contributed to his uh, desire to write this new 
encyclical Fratelli Tutti just issued a few weeks ago. Um, could you talk a little bit about Fratelli Tutti in, in these veins, Cardinal Cherney? Glad to do that, but I think uh, I, I personally appreciate Fratelli Tutti even more when I know that it's not uh, a COVID encyclical. It was being written and basically being uh, finished uh, when with it. Our um, uh, connections and references, and certainly it's very uh, fruitful to read it uh, and to meditate on it in the context of what we're living right now. But I would say uh, that uh, Fratelli Tutti is uh, deeper, uh, broader, uh, and and more radical, more radical than COVID. Uh, COVID uh, is uh, the name of what we're uh, struggling with in 2020. Uh, our struggle in 2021 might have a different name, uh, but um, Fratelli Tutti uh, gives us a, um, the com it, I would say it's a combination of a self-portrait and a mission. We are Fratelli Tutti, that, that, so that if we take our picture, our picture uh, at uh, Genesis, our picture at, uh, at birth, uh, our picture in the sculpture on the campus at Boston is that we are brothers and sisters. Those, those 144 people are brothers and sisters to each other, even though they never met. Uh, and uh, that's, so that's the truth uh, of our vocation, that uh, our nature is to be brothers and sisters. That's how we're born and how we are expected to live. But it's also our mission because God knows we don't live like it. We don't, we're, not, we're not up to the mark. We don't fulfill the challenge of our, uh, of our calling. And uh, it, we're not going to meet uh, the challenges of, of uh, the climate crisis, of uh, worsening poverty, of um, violence, uh, racism, and all the other uh, ills and isms that afflict us uh, un until we go deep enough to say yes to my brother and yes to my sister. And um, so that, that uh, story is, as I say, uh, deeper and longer lasting than COVID, uh, although it's uh, more than worthwhile to read Fratelli Tutti in, in, uh, with our COVID questions in mind, but we can also read them with our environmental questions, with our questions about racial justice, uh, either questions about sexism, our questions about, uh, about inequality, poverty, discrimination, uh, and so on and so on. And that's, and so Fratelli Tutti is, is a great, great, great act of faith uh, in the God who made us and in the human family that we are and that we must act like if we're going to keep on living on, in this common home. Thank you. I, I really find in Fratelli Tutti what you've just underscored, the kind of central uh, idea that we truly belong to one another, this really fundamentally social vision uh, of the person that we survive and thrive only in relationship to others, the social nature of the good, an implicit social nature of sin, um, really to have a lot to say to migration as well. Certainly Fratelli Tutti 
um, emphasizes longstanding church teaching on migration, the right to remain. Um, he lists concerns about abuses people face on the move and the need for, for welcome. Um, but I thought this broader social emphasis helped uh, break open the migration ethics conversation more, um, kind of drawing our attention to the influence of populist discourse or virulent individualism or neoliberal economics. I think um, as a whole, it really pushes back against these forces of isolationism um, or ideology that really play a, a big role uh, in in hospitality to refugees and migrants, so to speak. Um, I wonder, um, to just return to Angels Unawares, um, about the potential there. A lot of Fratelli Tutti talks about um, division in our societies, and we certainly confront that here in the United States. Um, and I wonder if you could reflect a bit, Cardinal Journey, on the, um, the prospect for public art, like Angels Unawares, um, where you see um, Timothy Schmaltz incorporating Muslims escaping Syria alongside Jews escaping Nazi Germany and um, a little Irish boy escaping the potato famine, perhaps Eritreans bound for Lampedusa, um, together with our Holy Family. And actually, I told my students on our recent visit, I believe your parents are also uh, at the end. Is that is that true? No, um, true? Well, I wonder what you think about how evocative works like Angels Unawares can help um, shift our imagination around questions like receptivity to migrants and refugees or, or what each of you think we can do to help shift um, misleading narratives around migrants. Well, maybe, maybe what uh, we could say uh, linking the uh, monument with our discussion is that maybe we could also rename it uh, Fratelli Tutti. And so then, then we see uh, a, a, in, uh, in bronze, in sculpted bronze, we can see uh, the, the, both the truth that we are all on this uh, uh, boat together on, or we're all in this common home together. We are Fratelli Tutti, but if we don't behave like Fratelli Tutti, we'll, We'll, we won't arrive. Nice. We won't arrive. But I, I would be interested to hear how uh, how your question is being uh, reflected on campus and in Boston, because now you have it uh, there in your midst. You could also call it our Lampedusa, another phrase that you used earlier. This is our Lampedusa, and it's come to us so that we, uh, as our uh, colleagues were saying so that we can recognize the border that's uh, on our doorstep. That's right. I, I think I see people stopping. It's, it's just outside my window here. I see people stopping um, to look at it from all angles. I, I um, discover something new every time I go, I would say, in the, in the detail of each of the individuals, each of the 140. Um, I was struck by my students recognizing their own family histories. So a sense, um, like Father Alejandro was saying, it's not the other, it's not a name, it's not anonymous, um, it's not that could be me, it's, it's me, it's our, it's our common identity, our common history. Um, and the fact that the, the Holy Family are within, um, I think, adds this, this layer of summons, as you said, not only a self-portrait, but an invitation. Um, 
Marjean or Father Alejandro, any other ideas about art or, or practices of encounter that could help kind of shift the reductive imagination we often see or hear around these issues? Marjean, oh, do you want to go first? <laughs> sure. Sorry, I, I know I'm like bursting. Um, because, you know, as you're, as I'm picturing the, the statue, I'm also naming each of those people with somebody that I've been blessed to meet and to work with and to learn from. And so, um, you know, I've met the, the most amazing people from all corners of the globe. And they've all taught me something. And I'm lucky to be able to do this work. And I wish that there was more people that wanted to know their names, wanted to know the names of those that we serve, and really wanted to hear those stories. And so I think we have to, and I also charge myself with this as a task, is finding ways for people to see the humanity in one another because that is what has allowed us to become so divided as a country. The fear that we have of somebody who doesn't speak English the same way we do, or doesn't have the same skin color, or the same background. Um, and it, it's really paralyzing us, and it's preventing us as, from moving forward as a nation, and uh, clearly preventing us from moving forward to, towards our goal of, of, of being in the heavenly kingdom. Um, it, it is really sad when we hear these horrific things being said about people who only come here because they don't often have a choice. It's very sad to hear unaccompanied children being referred to as vaccine or as disease spreaders. It, it's, it's absolutely horrific to see children ripped from their parents' arms. That can never happen again in this country, but yet it does. It has moved behind the headlines from the summer of 2018 and family separation continues and we see it here in Boston. We see it when parents are taken away in the dead of the night and put into shackles for the crime of coming to feed their children. And we see it when children are not represented in immigration court and have to explain to a judge why they should be able to stay here and live out their lives in freedom and away from, from abuse. Um, and, and each of those people have a name. And as Father said, each of them have a story. And until we can start to find ways, and again, I, I challenge myself with this, how can we, we're doing all of our direct service work here at Catholic Charities, which is very time intensive, um, but how can we also help people to see one another and to see that, again, there before the grace of God go I. Um, and, uh, and so, I, I really believe forums like this, um, there's a, over 100, 200 some people on this forum. If, if every one of us could just commit today to, if you do see somebody and you're frustrated by the fact that they don't understand you when you're trying to check out of the supermarket, or you, know, you, you get aggravated by an accent, but just take that second, take that moment to say, you know, maybe if I were where they were at, I would have trouble too. It might sound simple, and it is simple. It, it's, it's harder to be angry all the time than to want to be kind. You know, we need to be better in this country, and we can, but it's going to take, take a lot of, lot of healing and a lot of leadership, genuine leadership. Yeah, probably, I, I will say two things. I, 
two things about the sculpture uh, that one is that give me a lot of consolation and in a way uh, challenges me. I like going around the sculpture. I've been there several times here on campus. I like looking at the faces. I really like looking at the faces because they reveal in a way people, they reveal stories, they reveal circumstances. Uh, from a little girl that has a dog, from a mother that is holding four children, mm -hmm. from a slave that is kind of kneeling, that probably was forced to leave his town, from a, a Native American people who was, uh, who is on the boat, to the people kind of like carrying a small bag. I mean, like all the details that remind reminds us about our humanity, about life, about the desire. And so I find that consoling, and challenging at the same time. And I think, I mean, to your question and, um, about the role of the arts, I think that it's, arts could be evocative, arts could be a tool to, to show resistance, to show hope. Uh, I've seen, I mean, at least in the, in the work of the shelters across, across Mexico, these Casas de Migrantes, migrant shelters, one of the things that is striking is that the art that they have from very, um, contestatory, kind of like the resistance that we can do it, that you, you grab the life, you put the, the life on your back and it's, it's just amazing to other works like in San Luis Potosí, shelter in San Luis Potosí where migrants created this mosaic of stories in which faith comes through. Their desires, their hopes, their, their longings for those who are left behind. So I think art is also a way to, to show our feelings, our hopes, our struggles, and it could be evocative for different people at different times. I don't know yeah. if, if people know that uh, the, there are 140 uh, people on the boat because there are 140 saints around St. Peter's Square. And so I find it very touching to think that each, each of those vulnerable people on the boat has a saint looking out for him or her. And maybe if you, we see the sculptures elsewhere where there's no uh, saints uh, surrounding it, uh, maybe that's what we're supposed to be. Maybe we should be patron saints of the people on the move. I really appreciate that detail and that those 140 are, are models of holiness for us too. I know that folks on the move often have been that uh, for me in my life. Um, I wonder if we could stay with the um, topic of what people can do. I have a question from some students here about how Catholic universities uh, could more deeply engage these issues. Um, I believe uh, Marjean began to talk about how people could get involved today. Um, and Patrick from uh, the Church in the 21st Century uh, Center has listed in the chat there, um, I believe, a slide from Marjean about concrete ways if you'd like to read more. But what does each of you think in terms of the role of the Catholic University in general, perhaps, uh, or concrete ways people listening today might get more involved? Well, let me uh, say quickly uh, something uh, maybe very simple is just to uh, each year to increase your uh, the quota of uh, uh, migrants and first generation students and uh, just keep doing that and i i i know it's uh, sounds simple i know it's not easy to do the the administrators will not appreciate my saying it but i think it's a very concrete way of uh, being uh, 
a sensitive university and of uh, giving uh, the uh, uh, giving the people the recently arrived the chance not only to get a good education but also to educate uh, those of us who think we're stable and secure which uh, if we think we're stable and secure even during COVID we do need more education so it, it, it's a it's a mutual benefit excellent probably I will remind us of what is the goal of a university universities is have two goals one is the production of knowledge i think that is very very important on the one hand but on the other hand is the education of the people so i think in terms of the responsibility of catholic universities on the one hand is continue working and promoting research around refugees around migration to really bring and from different fields from public health to sociology to anthropology to ethics to theology to really bring light from a knowledge-based perspective of what are these issues, what is at stake, and in a way also how can we through knowledge be creative and be informed in seeking ways, ways to, to um, address migration in a way in which is not, it respects the dignity of the people and promotes the dignity of the people. And on the other hand is we just need to keep educating our students. Anyone who crosses our classrooms, we just need to keep working with them, uh, helping them to be critical, helping them or educating them to be informed. And I mean, like on the one hand, yes, knowledge base is great, but it's also about all the experiences that especially Catholic universities can provide, immersion trips, retreats, uh, experiences in the classroom. Now that we are more, much more um, comfortable with using technology, is really linking with people across the globe to really hear what people in vulnerable situations in context of mobility have to say. So production of knowledge and education around these issues of migration would be a great way to go in Catholic universities. Thank you. Martin, any further thoughts about um, opportunities for collaboration even? Sure. Um, one thing I, I really want to highlight is, is that uh, through the education that you're providing the students, one real lack that we see on the service side is a lack of bilingual bicultural clinicians. And this has become so much more pronounced um, as we're dealing with COVID and people also, um, there was a lot of trauma for our clients around the election. Many of our clients and even our staff come from countries where there's so much instability politically that people were having um, recurring nightmares. And so, and then there's oftentimes not enough bilingual, bicultural, and I'm stressing bicultural clinicians um, that are able to work with these populations. And, and also we have to keep in mind that many of our, our people that we serve are not eligible for publicly funded health insurance. And so the access to getting help from clinicians is very, very challenging. And it only, um, people only get help when they're at their worst case scenario, when they are, you know, actively suicidal or, and have to be hospitalized. And that's not where we want, um, that's not where we want people to be. We want to be able to prevent that. So, um, and I realized 
one university cannot solve all of that. But, um, but I have seen the wonderful students that especially come out of the School of Social Work, Father Alejandro, and just really continue to promote that and to broaden it, as you said, you know, as you're preparing people to be in the classroom and to educate, educate children of immigrants or immigrant children themselves. Um, I, I mean, I do want to really stress that um, the Catholic Church has really, in the US, has made a commitment to serving immigrants and refugees. And um, for when I started in this work, we, about 25 years ago, we were talking about comprehensive immigration reform. And um, the bishops have a whole dedicated campaign for that. And I'm sure they would love to be able to stop funding that at some point. Um, but uh, while we still have this work ahead of us, um, the Justice for Immigrants campaign is really important to just sign up and you'll and to get information and to get um we have to go behind the sound bites right that are out there and that are quick and scary and really understand and learn and that takes time these are very complex issues and i've been doing this a long time and i still don't know it all and and, and be able to articulate it all to you so i would just really encourage more education and then just please remember all of our brothers and sisters in your prayers um prayer is powerful um, and I'm sure his eminence can speak to that more than I can. Um, but, uh, but, but they need you and we need you and, um, and, and don't give up. Thank you. Um, your mention, Margine, of the uh, ongoing Justice for Immigrants uh, campaign and work here on the ground as elsewhere um, leads me maybe to a final uh, question to each of you, because we have among us kind of representatives from the global level and then the binational and then the local levels. Um, the work uh, supporting and meeting the needs of migrants and refugees continues on the ground, kind of no matter what administration is, is in power or what prospects for comprehensive reform we face. Um, what would each of you say are um, the pressure points that uh, you think we should be pushing in international organizations or governments um, to most effectively uh, meet the needs today? Uh, well, if I could start with the, uh, at the international level, I would say the single uh, most important thing that could be done uh, if you want an international solution is to implement the two new global compacts, uh, the global compact for uh, refugees and the global compact for uh, a safe orderly migration. Uh, those are internationally negotiated uh, compacts with a whole host of uh, thing, policy options that, that have been tested. And uh, if we could, uh, as, as each country and as international uh, community of countries, implement the compacts, uh, it, does, it won't solve all the problems, but we'd be a, a lot further ahead. So that, on the international agenda, I'd put the compacts uh, right at the top. Right, thank you. Father Alejandro? Yes, I think in, in regard to the border, I think there's a need for more collaboration to respond to probably the most urgent needs of those people, more than 60,000 people waiting for their asylum process. So on the one hand is, yes, their mental health needs, their public health needs, their access to services, education for children. So making possible that those processes or those rights that uh, asylum seekers and migrants have will be enacted and will be accessible. That would be one thing, more collaboration on that. And on the other hand, is just 
to really incre increase the, the due, I mean, like facilitate the due process. So all these claims for asylum, uh, for asylum that people have can be processed at a faster speed. That will also help uh, a lot on the ground. And then yeah. finally, I'll just add very quickly, I think we need to be persistent. Um, as you know, our country's leadership is changing. There are so many urgent issues to be dealt with. And you know, it's often easy to, to kind of push refugees and immigrants and, and the, the due process the father is talking about under the rug because it is complicated, but we need to be persistent and, and hold leadership accountable. Um, and I also would just kind of to follow on what Father said is, is the real need for um, representation in the courts for unaccompanied children and also for families and for immigrants. Um, as we know, uh, immigration attorneys are not a given if you're in court. And it's very hard for people to get to be able to move toward that path to stability without an attorney. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks to each of you from those um, kind of three important perspectives. Of course, all are at play in the lives of persons on the move, the global and the, the regional or the national and the local. Um, and I'd also just like to thank each of you, Cardinal Cherney, Father Alejandro, Marjean, uh, for your insights uh, this afternoon with us, but also your ongoing work uh, on the ground. Um, I wanna add a, a thank you to Cardinal Cherney for Angels Unawares. <clears throat> uh, it continues, uh, for all of us who pass by it uh, to both reflect us and our journeys and also summon us or invite us into the deeper solidarity each of you has spoken about today. So thank you to all of you who have joined us uh, today as well. Um, if you are interested, the video of today's webinar will be published on the Church in the 21st Century website within about a week or so. Uh, and thank you again to all of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. For more Catholic Faith resources, follow us at bc.edu backslash c21 or via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs>